take it and we'll turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, you know, we're flying through this book so fast. No one's listening. <laughs> the book of Jonah, as I told CE our the hardest book I've ever preached through already in 35 years is this book. The book of Jonah is a very, very intricate. If you don't know grammar, you're in trouble. <laughs> and if you're not willing to listen to Hebrew scholars, you can be in trouble. Because, it, there, matter of fact, one of the guys that I... Um, one of the guys that I respect, and Peter Gaiman, actually, Dr. Gaiman gave me his, his name as one of the three main guys to listen to. Was, his name's Youngblood. And unbelievable things that I am learning that I've never known before. Uh, unbelievable. These words like we've already looked at when Jonah was told to go up and cry out, and what did he do? His descent was he went down to Joppa, went down into the ship, or went down into the harbor, went down on the ship, went down in the ship, and eventually went down into the Sheol. Water, right? It's this constant, all those words play a poetic. In Hebrew, it's unbelievable. And I wish that I was more versed in Hebrew that I could help you with all these terms that are used, but it is unbelievable how this was written. And, it, and by the way, the very fact that, at least I believe, that Jonah wrote this book is amazing. When's the last time you wrote a letter to the church about all your faults? Seriously. I don't know if Jonah did write the book, and I really believe he did, something changed in his heart drastically to be able to publicly share the nonsense and the angst he had against God's direction in his life. Does that make sense? We are in verse 16. And it's a quite... A shock, not to us, because we've known this story about the fish. Matter of fact, you talk about Jonah instantly in your mind, in everybody's mind, in the world, it's a fish, right? It's all about a fish. Well, reality is that's just a small little part of what the book is. The book is all about God. It truly is. And it's about God and how that He opened the door to repentance and faith to the Gentiles. Jonah 1.16 says, and this is what we dealt with last week, then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Then what happened? 
Well, I want to show you what happened here. The men, before verse 16, earnestly prayed, O Lord, this is the text. If you read the text, you'll find all these. I'm just bringing out some very important truths in where we're at this morning. We earnestly pray. Who's praying? The Gentile sailors. Gentile sailors are praying to the Almighty God. That is a wow factor. That is an unbelievable factor. We earnestly pray, O Lord. And here's what they pray. Do not let us perish on account of Jonah's life. And do not put innocent blood on our hands. That's what he pr- they prayed that. And then what did they do? So that's, this is the center of it, and you can find it as you read along here. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And we talked about this last week. They didn't have to pick up Jonah. Why was that even a thing? And to be honest with you, it is my opinion that God chose to have Gentiles throw a Jew, a, a, a follower of God, into the water for judgment a picture that that's what's going to happen with Nineveh. Nineveh is going to judge. God's going to use Nineveh to judge Israel. And frankly, to blow up Israel and never Israel coming back until God says. Truly believe that's the picture that is being shown. Regardless, that's my opinion. And please remember, opinion is so much more less than Bible. Amen. But it, it, it looks to me, that's why they said, Jonah said, hey, pick me up and throw me out because he has two legs, he could jump, right? All he'd have to do is sit on the, on the bow of the ship and he'd be a goner. You know what's happening, but he did this for a reason. And so they picked up Jonah. They didn't want to. Now, why they didn't want to, the text doesn't tell us, but they didn't want to. They picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and look what happens. And the sea stopped its raging. What did they pray for? They specifically prayed, do not let us perish. In other words, stop the storm so we don't die. God answered the Gentile prayer and he stopped the seas raging. And then, this is where we're at this morning. Not only did, they, did God answer that prayer, but he also answered the second prayer. What was the second prayer? Or the second part of the prayer? Do not put innocent blood on our hands. And then what God do? He appointed a fish. Don't put Jonah's death on us. Okay. Fish. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, what kind of, who does that? God. God takes the unexpected and makes it relevant. And here he does that. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. I think it's quite unexpected that God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. They picked him up, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging, and, do you see the terms there? These terms matter. This and here, and and here. And they go right to up here. That is the, and by the way, how many times do we read, how many times have we read this book and never put that together? Let's just be honest. 
We're so used to the storyline, we're so used to the simpleness that we lose the intricacies. And I'm going to argue this morning, we are so used to pointing out the sins in everyone else's lives that we forget the God who made us all. Does that make sense? We're going to see that today in this text. The Bible says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 1, verse 16. The verb appointed here comes from the root word pertaining to counting or apportioning. The book of Jonah contains four instances of this verb, all of which pertain to elements of nature that God employed to teach Jonah a lesson. Jonah is being taught just like you and I are being taught. Do you and I sin? Is there a day go by that we do not have a wrong thought, a wrong word, a wrong action, or simply not doing what God asks to do? Or for him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not? I mean, there is a vast thing. There's sin all over. We're saturated in it. We're under the influence of it. And we all partake in it. The reality is, we, just like Jonah, have a God that cares and loves us. Despite our sin, God loves us. Amen? Despite our sin, God died, and he told, by the way, he told the adulterous woman like a week before he died, he said, listen, remember the Pharisees going to him and say, hey, this woman is an adultery. By the way, well, we'll get into that a little bit later. He didn't attack the woman. He attacked the religious bigots. And then he said, go and sin no more. Just like he did to the woman in the well, he did the exact same thing. He doesn't broadcast the sin all over and say, hey, 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 look at this. I'm reminded of that so often. And three weeks ago, I was standing in front of 20 to 30 college and career kids. And we had a spectacular time in the Word. And it was the last morning. All of us were ready to bit packed up and left. And all of a sudden, the, the, you could see throughout the week, the group was growing. The staff started to come. It was, it was exciting. And I tried to help them practice what we had learned for the last Six, five sessions. We have a real problem, believers do, of pointing out the sin in others for nefarious reasons. How many understand that? Look, this guy is this. What a horrible person. And the nefarious reason? I'm not that bad. How many understand exactly what I'm saying? We tend to look at the problems and point them out because for some reason our mind thinks if we show everybody else their problems, then we aren't so bad after all. Listen, folks, we are dirty, rotten sinners bound for hell, but by the grace of God, every one of us. 
We do that same thing with what we have a problem with in America today, with gays and lesbians, transgenders. Oh, you wicked, horrible sinner. Listen, you can hate the sin but love the person. That person needs help just like you needed help and need help. And so God in His infinite, awesome, sovereign wisdom, and we'll learn a term that we've been learning in CER called providence, the providence of God. We'll learn that in just a second. God directs us and He uses sometimes natural ways to correct us. How many understand that? Here in this text, we see exactly what happened. God's appointing in Jonah. Here's what he did. In verse chapter 1, verse 4, God's the subject. And what did God use? Used a storm. For what reason? To correct a child of his. Folks, we don't need a storm, or we shouldn't need a storm. We already, have, we already have the text to show us what happens when we disobey. Does that make sense? So God's the subject, the storm is the object, and God uses that object to correct us. And in this text, specifically, correct Jonah. And by the way, just for... Uh, Full disclosure, he not only used it to correct a sinning believer, but he also used it for the repentance and belief of the whole ship. Amen? Who does that? God does that. And he has this knack of doing these things all the time. Why? He is the sovereign, omnipotent God. Amen? So he used the, the, the correction of one of his children to save a whole bunch of people. Man, we serve an awesome God. Amen? What an awesome God he is. Verse 17 of the same passage, we have the same thing. God is the subject. What did he do? And this is our text. He used the object of a great fish. Now, we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Lord willing, if there's time and the rapture doesn't happen, which I'm praying it does, I don't know about you. Not because I haven't prepared. <laughs> this isn't one of them classes that, oh, help me with this test that I haven't prepared for. Believe me, I am into this text. The reality is, God used a great fish to correct. And here's the other point. So, in the storm, did he judge someone, yes or no? Yes. Did he save someone, yes or no? How in the world can you judge and save? God does. And in this text, verse 16, 17 and following, we have the same thing. Here's God, and he's going to judge. And did he judge Jonah, yes or no? Absolutely by having these Gentile people throw him into the ocean was certainly not a pleasant thing. But there's also a selvic aspect to it. That sel salvic or salvation aspect is 
he sent a great fish to keep him alive. If he was kept alive, preserve him for sure. And we talked about that last week. How many read more about that last week? Just, I just want to hear. Anybody thought more about did Jonah die or did Jonah not die? It's a good, it's, there's nothing wrong with thinking about it. Regardless, it doesn't matter to the text here whether he did or didn't. God preserved him, amen. In chapter 4, verse 6. Do you know what God does? And, and all these things, I'll point to this, I'll point to that, or, or threw that at him, or whatever the case may be. God is the subject again, and God rose a plant up. Right? Chapter 4, verse 6. We aren't there yet, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but chapter 4, verse 7. Then God chose and appointed an insect. All of this, by the way, all these instances, God is employing nature to do His bidding of correcting and saving. How many see this? That's what He's doing. By the way, if you want more information on this, you can... Uh, how many have ever heard of the Anchor Bible series? No one's heard of it. There's a, that's a good series. <laughs> the Anchor Bible series has a whole couple of pages just on this issue. Jonah, and by the way, it's, it's even more than this. I've given you all of this. Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar, nor am I, therefore I am not equipped at all to teach you Hebrew, nor would I want to teach you Hebrew. But I will tell you this. In these words in Hebrew, there's a poeti poeticism to them. One is, the, uh, the great fish is dog, D-A-G. You throw that backwards, it's God. How many see this? That type of thing. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not going to teach you all this. But the reality is Jonah is using, if he is the author, and I believe he is, he's using poetism to show the providence of God so it will ring and stick in our minds. I will, I will tell you, and I'll tell you over and over again, God is a God of justice and a God of mercy, both of them. And both of them are seen here. And the more we know the songs that we sing, the songs that we sing, are they poetic? In nature, usually. Yes, why? To help us remember that God is a God of mercy, a God of judgment, a God of salvation, a God of justice, a God of grace, a God of sovereignty. I mean, you can, you can talk about these things forever, amen. But to keep them in our minds, he uses this. Jonah is that. It's poetism in a narrative. It's phenomenal. Do you recognize what a storm, a great fish, a plant, and an insect are? We would put them underneath the heading of nature. Fair? Now, providence is double causation. What is double causation? Well, double is two causes, right? Two causes. Let me give you an example of double causation. How many of you are praying for rain? One of you? Shame on you. <laughs> Listen, we either need rain or the rapture, one of the two. 
It is so bad, the peppers are dehydrating for us on the plant. It's that bad. So we're going to pray for rain. How many have been praying for rain? Please pray for rain. We need rain. At least I think we need rain. Next week, we might have a couple of storms, or the heat wave is going to be transferring into differently, and a storm might go, a meteorologist is going to say, hey, I predict a 70% chance of rain next Tuesday night. The rain comes. Let me ask you, are you going to thank God that He answered your prayer, yes or no, that the rain came? Do you know what the world is going to say? What are you talking about? The meteorologist said it was going to come. It was, it's their, their causation, right? Well, let me ask you this. First of all, is a meteorologist ever right? By the way, there's two people in our church that we can ask, and it's Andrew and Scott McComsey. You ask them, hey, when's it going to rain? And, and, and they, I don't know where they get their information, but they are right quite a bit of the time. They are my meteorologists. I actually told Andrew that about two weeks ago. The reality is, was the meteorologist right? Yes or no? Yeah, he was right in that. Is he the cause of it? I mean, is it, is it the rain the cause of the water on the ground? Yes, that's natural cause. Who controlled all that? God. God controlled all that. We know that. That's what gets doctors pulling their hair out, right? It's, it's like cancer's gone. What happened? Well, we used this and this and this. And the person looks at it and says, no, God did it. <laughs> the reality is God uses natural causes to correct, to save, to do all of us that bidding. Amen. Look at, and he's done this often. He's done this often. We'll talk about that more and more as the day goes on, Lord willing. This is great to focus on God, isn't it? By the way, I didn't. The last thing he brings is a south wind. By the way, the last thing we need right now is a south wind. At least that's what we think. God knows all. Regardless, the Lord appointed a great fish. When you look at verses that we've shown up already, the 15, 16, 17, and following, who's the main character? Who's the main worker? Who's the main actor, if you will, in this narrative? The Lord is. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. God is the actor. God is the one. To be sure, when we focus on the wickedness of God's prophet, and we can do that to every one of us. Is that not true? When we focus on the wickedness of God's prophet or the wickedness of God's people, we tend to lose sight of the greatness of our sovereign God. How many understand that? We get so enamored. It's called legalism, by the way. We get so enamored with everybody else's sin that we lose sight of how great our God is. And I think that can be an easy... Let me ask you, when we talk about Jonah... The, the book of Jonah. Do we think about God or do we think about Jonah and we think about a fish? L let's be honest. We think about Jonah and the fish. It's not about Jonah and the fish. It's about God. 
It's all about God. We focus so many times, and, and this is what happened that, that last day with those college and career kids. We sat down and we started talking about, I asked them to do this. I said, listen, we talked about vocation for the last five services. Now, some of these young people have never been told how they positively affect our lives or the vocation that they are in, the calling that God has called them to do for all of our benefit, the giftedness that they have been given. We don't tell people about that. We want to talk to them about their sin because it makes us look better because we're not that bad. But we don't tell them how God is using them in our lives in a good way. How many understand the question or the, what I laid at their feet? And I was very transparent with them. In a sense, I grew up in a legalistic type environment where no, 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 not, 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 sin, 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 sin. How many understand that? I'm 54 and three quarters years old, right? I'm looking at Robert because him and I have that thing going on with that age thing. No one had ever told me what, how God used me in their class or in their life until two years ago. Dr. Burgraff sat me down. He said, Tim, God has gifted you, and he told me. The first time anybody has ever said that to me. I've been in an independent, Bible-believing church for 50, almost 55 years. And two years ago? Let me ask you, do we have a problem telling people what God is using them in, yes or no? We do. We have a problem with that. We need to be telling people how God is using them in our lives to further the gospel. How many understand that? I will tell you, all those young people were sitting there, adults were sitting there, they started talking. They started telling each other, I want to thank this guy. This is how God's using him in my life. And they're like, I never heard that. And just, they were sobbing. These are college and career adult men and women sobbing because it's the first time they've learned, I'm useful for God. It's an experience I will never forget. And it's a reality I never want to forget because we have a tendency to tell people what's wrong with them, but we never tell them what's right with them. And it's God and how God's using them. And I'm afraid we do that with the book of Jonah. And we lose sight of God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had the same problem with other people's sin. We see it in John chapter 7 and 8 with the adulterous woman. 
the legalist re religious of the day were all eager to kill the woman for her adultery. By the way, we wonder where the man was. Fair. We're all eager to stone him to death. One wonders where the man was. This sin does take two. Regardless, all they were focused on is judging publicly the adulterous woman in order to get Jesus to trip up and go against the law or basically prove not to be the sinless God who he was. God was not impressed with their judging nor their trap and perfectly states how they should focus on their own sins instead of making themselves feel better about themselves by publicly denouncing the sin of somebody else. Am I making it abundantly clear? You see, the law said, if a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus 20. But here's the issue. God's grace and mercy are perfectly on display when Christ the sinless says this. He says, let the, first, let the person who does not sin throw the first stone. Did he not say that? Oh, how perfect that was. Because the elder people, by the way, they're the ones that left first, we find in the text. The older ones recognized, oh, okay, we're not going to win this. And they left. We can find all this, and, and I don't want to belabor the point. But Jesus, in this example, will go all the way down to verse 10 and 11. He says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, where, woman, where are they? Has no one can condemn you? Why did Jesus not know that? He was writing on the sand. Do you remember that? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, look what he says. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. This is an example how Jesus forgives all sin. He did not condemn the adulterous women to death, nor did he say that since he had come, her, since he had come, her adulterous deed was no longer a sin. On the contrary, he openly revealed her sin to her personally, by the way. Everybody else was gone. Amen. And he said, go and sin no more. Here's the question. Just like Jonah, why is the story called the story of the adulterous woman? Why isn't it the story of God's great grace? <laughs> or the story of God's merciful graciousness? This story as well as Jonah, are about God and His mercy, His grace, His judgment, His justice, His salvation. The sin and wickedness are simply a means of God's great glory. Not the headline. So God appointed this great fish 
that God graciously provided for Jonah's transportation. <laughs> and by the way, the fish is paralleled to the ship. The ship, by the way, was Jonah's idea and Jonah's way and Jonah's will. But the ship carried Jonah close to the grave. <laughs> or maybe in the grave, for all we know. But the ship, but the fish, the fish carried Jonah back to dry land and life. That was God's mode of transportation. And that brought life. And by the way, one of the greatest repentance the world has ever seen did that bring. Praise God that His gracious mercy, His perfect justice, and here's and his and I'm going to give you a new phrase. His judging salvation is the antithesis of how some Christians wrongly view Jonah as a worthless, disobedient racist. God still views Jonah as a minister. Do you see this? A minister that will accomplish his work. And he saves his life for that very purpose. God knows what's going to happen. God predetermines what's going to happen. But yet, we look at Jonah and say, Die, you scoundrel. And Jonah says, Live, you minister of mine. Do we see the difference? So the question is, was God mistaken? Should he have just let him die? Did not God not know how Jonah would carry out his mission? Did God not know Jonah's attitude following Nineveh's repentance? Of course he did. Yet God uses people as he wills. If many Christians today were, on, were in the role of a sovereign deity... Jonah and his corpse would still be buried in the depths of the Mediterranean because they believed Jonah to be a wicked, detestable, horrible person, and God abhors all that. Die, sinner. Is that not true? That that's exactly how we would judge. We would be totally dead wrong. Because Jonah was saved by Almighty God. To do his bidding. As one author correctly states, Nineveh was not a people group victimized by Jonah's so called racism. They were the oppressive group people. Amen. They're the ones that were nasty, horrible, wicked people. This aligns more closely with what has been widely known as the theme of the book of Jonah. Justice and mercy for the Gentiles. Jonah is about justice and mercy for oppressive Gentile people. 
The book articulates that Jonah had his own version of justice, which was antithetical to God's justice, love, and mercy. And by the way, Jonah had that version of justice because of God's promises that Israel would be the nation of the world eventually, and this was going to put a stamp of, no, it's not yet. Does that make sense? To explain it in modern terms, let me ask you a probing, current, somewhat current, question. We all get mad because Jonah didn't go to Nineveh, and we think, and we call him names and all this stuff and just hate him. Well, here's the reality. What Christian on September 12th 2001, was on a plane headed for Al-Qaeda, armed with the gospel and a call for repentance or God will destroy them. Name me one. I'm telling you, that illustration goes to the heart of where Jonah is. Another author says it this way, teaching Jonah as an example of racism is a new trend among biblical preachers and biblical commentaries and is detrimental to understanding several key theological truths in the book. You say, what, 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 what's going on, Pastor? Why are you talking about all this? I will tell you this. When I, when, I was, when I came out and said I was preaching on Jonah, I had people come to me with one book on their mind. The book was written by Tim Keller. Tim Keller wrote a commentary, quote-unquote, on Jonah, where he comes out and says, Jonah is all about social justice, and racism. Folks, do not let the common culture of our day get impregnated into what God was doing back then. Amen. That is misusing the text. I actually I couldn't even believe it. I had a lady write to me and said, you mean you're using Tim Keller's book? Like, I can't believe it. Amen. No way. Amen. How many understand this? We have a problem in our country today where wokeism is the color of the day, even in our commentaries and preachers. Don't be sucked into it. Read the text as is written, the authorial intent of the text. Amen. If you do not read the authorial intent of Jonah, you will believe exactly what Mr. Keller wrote because he's popular. And by the way, there are a plethora of preachers that write Jonah being this or that or the other thing. We don't know. But we do know this. God had justice. God saved a mil possibly millions of people. God used Jonah, God saved Jonah, God judged Jonah, God, and you can go on and on and on in what God did. That's what the book's about. That's our focus. That's what we need to love and embrace. Amen. 
I will tell you this, if we continue to rag on all the disparaging titles we dream of on Jonah and his heart, we risk missing the greatest themes of the whole book. In other words, today's Christians are so hell-bent on judging the motives of Jonah and his using current political terms and impregnating them into the historical text to accomplish a preconceived ideology concerning what they call true Christianity, which might be better called Christian wokeism. Did you follow that? I, I, I thought I wrote that down. I guess I didn't. That they lose sight of the greatness of God, which is the master scene and theme in this historical event. God's salvation of Gentiles, his relentless pursuit of mercy and grace on his disobedient children. God, in his perfect providential sovereign plan, turned Gentiles to worship him and later repent of their wickedness. What a gracious God we serve! Praise God for using us despite all of our wicked thoughts and actions that we continue to accuse others of. All of that said, what did God do? Last week we saw the change of fear and worship of God Almighty apart from the pagan gods that they did worship. And today we are going to see the salvation of a disobedient prophet. It is so awesome to see how God knows and appoints exactly and perfectly what is required to accomplish His perfect will. And this time, it's kind of amusing. He uses a fish. <laughs> or maybe better term is a sea creature. By the way, it's very, well, we'll get into it. I get ahead of myself because I get excited about the text. I got to stop. This would be a fair assessment. Pastor Graf, grow up. That would be fair. I'm like a little kid that just gets pumped about these things. It is so awesome to see how God knows and appoints exactly and perfectly what is required to accomplish His perfect will. In this case, God has appointed the perfect fish for Jonah the one best suited to help God make his point. The fish, therefore, has a dual function in, in the story. On the one hand, it is a means of salvation. Praise God for that. And Nineveh would say, amen to that. We needed to believe in God, which they do, and repent, which they do. And God used a fish to accomplish that. He used a storm to accomplish that. Double causation. The notion that God has a hidden or secret will is tied to the doctrine of providence. That states that God is actively working in and through His created order. Sometimes God has worked miraculously. And to be honest with you, this might be a miraculous thing. I don't know. I wasn't there, and the text doesn't tell us. All it gives us is a glimpse that it's either a really big fish, which might be a whale, or it's a sea creature, and, and we'll get into that. I, I'm not going to get ahead again. 
God is actively working in and through his created order. Sometimes God has worked miraculously. But providence is different from a miracle. When God works miraculously, he works on nature from the outside of it. Miraculous events have no explanation. They're beyond. That's what befuddles doctors, right? When he works providentially, however, God works from inside nature. In other words, the doctrine of providence requires double causation. Every providential event has a natural cause, but it also has a divine clause. Both are true. The doctrine of providence says that both answers are correct. It's both natural and God as long as neither excludes the other. The thunderstorm is a genuinely natural event, but it is also a divine answer to prayer. God worked through the chain of meteorological causes to respond to the children's pleas. And by the way, we see this all over in the text. The plagues of Egypt. Were some of those natural? Yes or no? Did God use nature in those? Absolutely. For his bidding. By the way, what a great thing of Egypt. He used nature so well that they paid them to leave. All expense trip paid out of Egypt. What about the snake bite of Paul? Was that natural events? Did God use the snake bite on Paul's hand in the brush pile to save others? Absolutely. What about Numbers 21? The Lord sent fiery serpents upon, among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Did God use that in a mighty way? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians is another one. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those that believed. You see, in America, to be honest with you, the tipping point, the changing from a religious entity, if you will, or at least a religious popularity, turning to a rational, reasonable, without God mindset, turned at the scope trials and the age of enlightenment. How many understand that? Not that all of that was wicked, but I will tell you what, the world today is plenty happy enough to have philosophy without God, to have truth without God, to have morality without God. I will tell you, there is no such thing. But our country today, look where it's at now. Human reasoning overtakes God's theology, and that's what's wrong with our world today. The episode that we're talking about with this fish 
concludes by noting God's purpose in appointing the fish. God's purpose in appointing the fish was to swallow Jonah. So here's the question. Is God disciplining Jonah? Or is God saving Jonah? Yes! <laughs> yes! Right? Yes! He's judging Jonah and he's saving Jonah at the same time. Praise God he does that for you and me. Youngblood states it this way. Divine wrath and judgment become a means of separating God's people from their sin in preparation for a restoration to covenant fellowship with a holy God. God disciplines to bring him closer to you. Why? He wants us close to him. Amen. And all the world's distractions are not going to accomplish that. They are just that, a distraction. Draw close to him. Amen. There's a discouraging statement in this town concerning Northland Bible Church. Here's the statement. They're too serious about theology and the Bible. Amen. 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 And amen. By the way, that's man's wisdom. That's man's religious wisdom. I've heard lately that even some of our young people that grew up here are being told, would you just stop being so theological and so biblically minded? This world is not, it is not a help to God's word. Even in our Christian colleges, it's bad. Now, does God still have a people's? He will and he always will. Amen. In the prophetic literature, Judgment and salvation are usually not alternatives from which God's people must choose. They are simple actions that God does at the same time. It is not salvation or judgment, but rather salvation through judgment. Amen. We see this even in our own lives. How many of you have ever been a child or have a child? Thank you. Reality is, you were disciplined in order to help save you, correct? God does the same thing. Matter of fact, it is God's standard that we try to uh, emulate, amen, in our lives. Youngblood states it this way, divine wrath and judgment becomes a means of separating God's people from their sin and restoring them into fellowship. So, the great fish that God appoints to swallow Jonah, therefore, is a perfect symbol to convey the prophetic principle of salvation, not from, but through judgment. God's judgmental salvation of a runaway prophet brings maybe the greatest change of heart the world has ever seen. God doesn't just, okay, Jonah, I've had it. 
Go eat seaweed the rest of your life. Instead, he judges him by having Gentiles throw him into the, into the ocean and then swallowed by a fish. If that's not judgment, I don't know what it is. I don't want to be swallowed by a fish. No way. But God judges them, but at the same time, he saves him for future ministry. Jonah is being saved for future ministry. And here's what legalism is. That's not fair. I didn't go drinking and smoking and doing this and that and the other thing. Why in the world does he get that great ministry? Because you're a proud, arrogant jerk. That's frankly why. The reality is, God uses wicked people for his glory. And God uses sinners for his glory and his service. Literally, we're going to find that Jonah ministered to Nineveh. And anywhere from 120,000, which we'll talk about eventually, and I'm, I'm prepared, but I'm not, I don't want to deal with that because it's later down the list, but anywhere from 120,000 to 6 million repented and believed God. If this was in today's world, Jonah would be the most popular and sought after speaker in all of Christendom. Would he not? He saw 120,000 to 6 million people saved. Yeah, bring them in. Have a, have a conference and get all these people here because he must be, oh, greatness. Well, we've already shown our problem. It is true that in Christianity today, he probably would have been the most popular and sought-after speaker in Christendom. He would have received a plethora of honorary doctorates, buildings, and maybe even church buildings named after him. Some may argue, well, it's not the messenger, but the message and the God behind the message, and you would be absolutely correct. Just like it's not about me either. It's about the truth of the word. Just like when you go and minister in your cathedral, did you get that? The place where God has pointed you, you can minister, and it's God's word. It's not you, it's the word that impacts their lives. We are simply sojourners in an alien land who constantly struggles with sin. But to quote Romans or Ephesians chapter 2, but God in his great mercy uses these, and we sang about this this morning, uses these cracked clay pots for his great glory. The implication of the text may be extraordinary. There are at least two pertinent questions that people may ask about the details. How many of you got a great picture of who God is this morning? I pray you did. But there's this nagging question that everybody has about Jonah, and we're in the text. So we have to deal with this nagging question. What is the question? Anybody know? Anybody want to fathom a guess? 
what's the fish? True? How many have that question? Just be honest. It's okay. God made it vague for us to question. What is it? Well, the perfect theological answer to that is, I don't know. So let's go home. But that's not what we're going to talk about. Let's just say that God was using nature throughout this whole thing. The storm, the beetle, the plant, the fish, all of that we talked about. So what is the fish? What was the fish? The, and, and by the way, the second one is this. How many of you, and, and I haven't, I will be studying this more and more, but I spent so much time on this, I didn't have time. The reality is this. What symbol is used for Jesus Christ today? Let me ask you, why? Why? Now, if you would go into theological uh, books and things, you will find many different answers to that. At this moment in my understanding, I have two views of this. First of all, it's called like an ichthos or something like that. And we'll talk about that. But secondly, if you remember in the New Testament, the Pharisees asked for a sign. And what did he say to them? You have the sign of Jonah. I think, in my opinion, again, I, I can't say dogmatically, but in my opinion, as a matter of fact, well, I have this on one of the presentations. There's actually the esophagus, uh, uh, which people are put in, sarcophagus. How many know what I'm talking about? So I'm getting the fish esophagus and the burial tomb sarcophagus all mixed up. Regardless, in the sarcophagus that is found of supposedly Jesus' family, guess what's on engraved in it? I'm not saying it is. It's not. The reality is that is a really old sarcophagus. Do you know what's engraved in it? Jonah being swallowed by a sea creature. That's, why? Because that's the sign of Christ. How many understand this? So eventually we'll talk about that in more detail. But today, with the last few minutes we have, what was this fish? Did a fish or a whale or something else swallow Jonah? Well, uh, it's all over the map, and I don't know how much you want to hear of all this stuff. But it is what we talk about. It is, it is somewhat important. Obviously, it's very important because it's in the Word. Amen? So what is this fish? Historian Bill Cooper recently helped him answer the question in his 2020-12 book, The Authenticity of the Book of Jonah. The main clue Dr. Cooper followed was simply the common Greek word that the Lord Jesus used for Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, when he's talking about the sign of Jonah, all right? That's what's found in Matthew 12, 40. It was for Jonah's monster, literally translated kidos. What was the kidos? Dr. Henry Morris, some of you should know that name, answers in Genesis. He, he deals with Genesis and, and the creation account. That's his whole life, if you will. It could have been a large whale shark or possibly some now extinct marine reptile. 
was his answer. Although knowing the animal's exact identity, it's not necessary to understand Jonah's, this passage in Jonah. It proper, its proper identification would add an element of historicity, but really maybe not help us understand the theological importance of it. So it's, it's important, and everybody talks about it, but it doesn't change the fact that God does great things. And that's the point of this. So, in Jonah 1.17, the reference as in 2.1 in Hebrew Bible uses the word dag to refer to a broad range of sea creatures. It is great in size. Instead of dag, it's gadol, which is again, do you see the switch of words here? A dag gadol. <laughs> Switching the letters around. Anyways, that's how awesome Jonah is. To begin with, we must note that the Hebrew word does not necessarily correspond to our modern designation of whale. Matter of fact, to be honest, from what I've understood, there is a different, better Hebrew word for whale than this word. That's why people quibble with the term whale and fish. How many understand that? In essence, why didn't God use the term of whale if it's a whale? He used a a more general term, which may include whale, may or not. That's the issue. Regardless, several sea creatures, particularly many different whale species, could readily admit a human into their mouths. But perhaps only two or three species could get a human down in one piece through their esophagus, which then will end up Someday in a sarcophagus, they'll die. That's why I got it mixed up. You'll have to understand. Jonah is described as being within the belly of the beast. That's what the text says, right? And that talks about their abdomen or stomach area. We are all, and if you're 50 or older, you know you have one. The four most popular explanations to what the great fish or creatures are is number one, a sperm whale. Now, I particularly gave this picture to you because the sperm whale can get up to, and, and I, by the way, it's all over the map, but some say up to 70 feet. But again, 60 is a good approximation of what males can get to. Regardless, it is a large mammal in the water. By the way, a fish is not a mammal, correct? You can ask Mr. Gaiman. He knows so much about this. He should be actually teaching this part of this. But regardless, it didn't matter back then. They all knew. They said fish, whatever was in the water, right? Great fish. Regardless, you can see the size of a person compared to the size of a whale. How many think that's a pretty huge discrepancy? By the way, if this story was written in North Minnesota, you'd have a fish that looks like a walleye swallowing a man, correct? So we have to get this in understanding also. So up to 60 feet long, 45 tons, 90,000 pounds. One man, this is kind of cool, one man, Marshall Jenkins, was swallowed alive by a sperm whale in 1771 and survived, according to history. 
By the way, that's history. That's not, thus saith the Lord, okay? Another incident, and this is a big one, concerns James Bartley. In 1891, Bartley was swallowed by a sperm whale that his whaling crew had harpooned. The whale slipped away, was found, and killed a day or so later. Bartley was found alive, but unconscious, unconscious in the stomach of the whale. He was revived and in a few weeks regained his health. That is a picture of the guy, by the way. So according to that, it's possible to live inside, to stay alive inside of a sperm whale. Now, do we know that for a fact? Well, we have two incidents that are historically recorded. That's all we know. But is that a possibility? Yes or no? Sure, it's possible. The next one that people always allude to, and by the way, they're found in the Mediterranean Sea. The second one that is alluded to is a whale shark. The whale shark is the largest confirmed fish, and it is a fish, in the sea by definition, growing up to 70 feet long and weighing 20 tons. Technically, true whales are not classified as fish in the English language, but that's regarding, that's not going to help our issue right now. This does help it. How many see that man in front of this whale shark? Does it look like that man could be swallowed, maybe even easier, by, Mr. Gaiman can't answer this question because he probably knows it, by the size of his mouth? Does it look like he could eat him? No question. By the way, does it look like it'd be a little hard to get inside that sperm whale's mouth with all those teeth, and it looks like he has a skinny jaw? Don't let this deceive you because, as Mr. Gaiman probably knows, a whale shark is a filter feeder, and its esophagus is the size of a quarter. Does that pose a problem? So, just like people, this shark has a big mouth, a little behind it, and oh, the sperm whale has a little mouth, but a lot behind it. Does that make sense? All right. I don't know, but these are, the, these are what people say are possibilities. Now, in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, it says the term keto, and that's an important, important to the discussion. The sec, second century B.C. saw the Hebrew Old Testament translated into the Greek Old Testament, commonly, commonly called the Septuagint. There, dag, gadol, remember, great fish, translates into keto megelo, meaning omega-sized keto. Now, in our minds, if we're going to bring keto into it, it's like, that's a weight loss program. What in the world is he talking Great weight loss. I want that. No, 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 no. Keto is a different term. And Jesus says this, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly up, according to the Septuagint, keto, so will the Son of Man be three nights and three days in the heart of the earth. 
was Jonah, and, and the word keto is this, and by the way, you can see it here, is, is, it can mean a sea serpent, a sea reptile, a sea creature. That's why in some of your um, uh, scriptures that you use, whether NASB, whatever you use, New King James, ESV, you'll see sea creature instead of great fish. Some of you will have great fish. Why? Because this term means something different back then. Keto meant sea serpent. And as you notice, this is what is carved on the sarcophagus in Israel. And it's a picture of Jonah being thrown into the ocean by a Gentile from a ship into a keto's mouth. That's a keto. How many understand that? So was it possible that this is a now extinct reptile or sea creature that was only back then. But here's the reality. And by the way, you can skip, if you see other pictures of Jonah that are older, they always have some kind of almost a dragon. How many see? Here's the reality. How many have seen movies that portray way back when those sailors were sailing the seas and what did they have on the front of their boat all the time? Pictures of these types of things. Why, who gave them those pictures? The reality is, in my summation of all the evidence, I am convinced personally that this was something unique that God appointed for Jonah. And that's why sea creature is involved. Now, could it have been a sperm whale? Sure. Could it have been a, it could have been a minnow? Because God is the greatness of God can do anything, right? But the reality is, if we're looking at just like he did in natural things, it could be a sperm whale. He could have miraculously used a whale shark. Or it could be the sea creature that is now gone and extinct. And I'll give you one more that I don't have on here. But I'll give you one more. God created something unique and special for this specific case. Is that possible? Absolutely possible. This is nothing to fight over. This is nothing to debate about. Because what matters is God used this judgment to save a dis and discipline a prophet of his for his great glory. That's the point. Now, You say, well, what do we do with all this information? There's a lot of information. I will tell you this, if you want to, and whether you want to or not, you should, you should see God through the eyes of Jonah. I know I'm not where I need to be. I'm running from God and His Word. If you're a child of His, watch out for the fish. Amen? Watch out for the keto. You say, well, we don't have that today. No, we've got worse looking things. God will correct His children. The timing, we have no idea. But he says very clearly, 
I correct those whom I love. Listen, folks. We have the story of Jonah to help us realize, I don't want that. I need to stay close to him. I need to obey him. I don't want to test his mercy and grace. I want to enjoy his mercy and grace. Amen? How about it? Why not learn from those that God gave us our examples of our lives and make the corrections before the fish gets a hold of your foot? Amen? They're made for our example, is the text so we can learn from them. Not to throw another sinner under the bus, but to glorify the merciful, gracefulness, justice, salvation of our great God. That's the focus. I pray that we will live our life accordingly and learn from the book of Jonah how great and just our God truly is and how passionately interested he is in you, that he'll actually maybe even create a fish to turn you around. Wow! What an awesome God we serve. Mr. Gaiman, can you close us in a word of prayer? Please stand, if you will. We'll be dismissed after I pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time of worship this morning. I pray that we would be people who are all about being obedient to you and bringing you glory through our lives and learning applications for our lives from Jonah. In Jesus' name, amen.